This morning we're continuing what you guys have been going through, the book of John. It'll be John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. And so as we pick up where you guys left off, I want to start off by first kind of doing a quick recap of what you guys have looked through in the past few times in the book of John. Just kind of bringing our hearts and our minds into focus for the text this morning. I know you guys have taken a few weeks off from John, so just a quick recap to get us back in that understanding of where we're at here in John 14. So as we know, this section of text is the farewell discourse that Jesus began back in chapter 13. Jesus, being aware that his hour of departure had come, begins this wonderful teaching as an encouragement and a strengthening for the disciples. I think it's quite beautiful to really take a step back and see the absolute love of Christ for his disciples in these chapters. Really putting ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. This man, the Christ, whom has been their teacher, has been their prophet, has been their promised Messiah for the past three years, living with them every single day, walking with them, is going to depart. And so we have Christ here giving them this encouragement in this farewell discourse. Again, imagine the relationships that have been built as they have starved together, as they have wept together, as they have seen all of Jerusalem and the lostness together. There's this bond between Christ and His disciples that is unmatched. And not only that, imagine the revelation they had experienced, the truth that they got to hear directly from the words of Christ. So there's this tremendous bond that has been built between Christ and His disciples, that unmatched love for one another. Disciples had a particular zeal over Jesus. Think of it, being the ones who were with the Messiah and be able to have that profession when Jesus asked Peter, who do you think I am? And he responds, you are the Christ. There is a deep bond, and now Jesus' time of departure is upon them. And when looking at this, it's important for us to recognize not only the divinity of Christ in these verses, but also the humanity of Christ. Christ being truly God and truly man had perfect sinless emotions. He truly cared in love for his disciples. And we see that in this farewell discourse. Being perfect, he knew that he must be crucified, but in that he also knew this would be very difficult for the disciples to understand. Their Messiah, their Christ, was going to be killed. And so Jesus, not wanting to leave them without understanding and hope, in his divine humility or humanity, shows them the compassion that has marked his entire earthly ministry. And he gives them this farewell discourse. And so Jesus, knowing that his time had come, begins this dialogue with the disciples we see back in chapter 13. Jesus, then after telling them he is departing, gives them a new commandment. To love one another as I have loved you. Again, taking a pause and seeing hindsight allows us to see that though Christ is going to be leaving them, he is setting up a commandment that in obedience will be an ever-present reminder of himself amongst them. He says, love each other as I have loved you. So that when he does depart, the love the disciples would show one another would be a remembrance of that love that Christ had shown them. 
It is in the love for one another that the disciples will have the reminder of the Messiah with them always. Comfort and obedience. O saints, that we would see our striving to be Christ-like as a source of comfort and not just following rules. Love one another as I have loved you is a reminder that the love Christ has shown us is far greater than any other fleeting amusement that this world could offer us. So going through 13, we then get to chapter 14. Jesus continues with his I am statements. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. The supremacy of Christ on display for us here in John 14. That no other path, no other way can lead to eternal life. It is through Christ and Christ alone. Again, another encouragement for the disciples that when Christ is to depart in just a few short hours, they know that He is the Messiah. He is the door. He is the way. Again, Jesus reminding them of His coming departure, but with that, giving the promise that He will come back for them. Then we arrive to the last section that you guys were in, verses 15 through 24. And we see this beautiful union and fellowship of the Trinity. Jesus has promised to them He will not leave them as orphans. Again, that beauty and compassion of our Lord. This love is not just robotic or compulsive, but it is divine in its origin and perfect in its application to the disciples. The compassion that Christ has is knowing the heartbreak that is about to befall His disciples. Because Christ is truly God and truly man, He understands heartbreak. He understands sorrow. He understands betrayal. And so He understands what these disciples are going to experience when He is going to depart them on that fateful day. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. Saints, that is a glorious promise that our Father in Heaven by His sovereign grace has declared we are His children forever. What a beautiful promise to behold and to grasp. And especially again for the disciples, putting ourselves in their shoes. The Messiah is going to depart. Again, that feeling of of departure, that feeling of betrayal almost... Christ, how can you leave us? You've been a, a father to you've you've been to a teacher to us, and you're leaving, and his promise is you're not going to be orphans. I've not left you alone. You are my father's children. Looking at verses sixteen through seventeen, it says, And I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. So continuing with these promises, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will come. Christ, in preparing the disciples for His departure, promises the Holy Spirit who will comfort them and be with them. And also, as we will see today, the Holy Spirit of truth will be their teacher. So this farewell discourse, the time of departure is upon Him, but Christ's mission in this time is to encourage and strengthen His disciples. He makes these promises that He will not leave them alone, 
and will not leave them without a source of truth. So with that, we get to our text for today. John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. Uh, I want to read those and then we'll get into it. John 14, verse 25. says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is the reading of the Lord's Word. So the title of the sermon this morning is The Promise of Peace is Secured by the Spirit of Truth. I want us to look at three main points today, those being, first, the Holy Spirit is God. Second, the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And finally, the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our peace. Again, verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Again, the stage has been set for us, saints. In a matter of hours, Christ will be betrayed. God in the flesh will be on trial before men. The creatures will declare the Creator guilty. Not only will they declare Him guilty, they will mock Him. They will pull at His beard. They will spit in His face. He will be paraded on a march to Golgotha. He will be hung on a tree that He Himself spoke into existence. As Roman soldiers whose very Heartbeats are held in his hands, will pierce him, and he will die. This is the stage that is set in a moment of hours. These things will take place, but before this takes place, Jesus speaks these words to his disciples that we have read today. It's unfathomable to imagine knowing you're going to be brutally murdered and tortured and then to then be focused on your love and compassion for those who have been around you. Christ's desire in His final moments is to leave His disciples with peace, joy, and hope. Christ is continuing to lay, to, lay out to the disciples that He will be departing them. He's trying to show this to them. Again, this is something that caused great trouble for those disciples. They know him as Emmanuel, God with us, and now God is leaving in a short few hours. The disciples have left behind everything to follow Christ, and his time to depart is at hand. And Christ, again, knowing this trouble, gives them this promise here in verse 26. And it says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Again, this is one of those verses that you could spend days upon days unpacking. There is so much amazing truth to mine from this. So much that we will not be able to fully grasp all of it this morning. But I want us to take a look at a few of the beautiful riches that are found in this verse that we can mine. Starting with, we have the entire Trinity on display in this verse. The Holy Spirit is promised by Christ to be sent by the Father. 
the Trinity, the foundational truth of our Christian Orthodox. We believe in God as three persons in one. That beautiful mystery. So I think it's important that we start with our first point this morning, that the Holy Spirit is God. I believe it's foundational to really understand what the depth of this promise is. If we don't start with the understanding that the Holy Spirit is God, it loses its weight, it loses its power. The statement that the Holy Spirit is God is controversial. It is one of the Christian truths that is widely debated amongst the cults and false religions of this world. They are quickly to claim that the Holy Spirit is just a spirit of force or that is another name for Christ or another manifestation of Christ. But that is not what the Bible teaches. And we understand this by looking at how Jesus describes for us here in this verse the Holy Spirit. Jesus says He is the Helper. He says He is sent by the Father. Finally, He says He will teach you. It's important to notice these little subtle things in these verses because it shows us the distinct nature of the Holy Spirit as being a third person. He will teach you. Jesus refers to the third person of the Trinity as He. It's not some impersonable force or other manifestation of Himself, but a distinct, unique person. We have the rest of Scripture to testify to this too. Genesis 1 says the Spirit is there in the beginning at creation. At Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descends like a dove. Jesus, when speaking to Nicodemus, says you must be born again, not only of water, but of the Spirit. I think one of the most telling sections is Acts 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We know the story, and Peter responds in Acts 5, 3-4. through He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Peter right there is making all the case that we need of the Holy Spirit being God. Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead for lying to God. Along with these verses, we see again throughout Scripture the distinction between the three persons in the Trinity. Christ, again, is promising for that third person of the Trinity to be sent by the Father. And again, looking back even in this chapter, verse 16, he says, And I'll ask the Father, and He'll give you another Helper to be with you forever. Father sending another person. He's not sending another form of Christ. He is sending another. He's sending the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And think of this too. If the disciples are to have any peace, any comfort from the coming of the Holy Spirit, He must be God. They've just spent three years with Christ. And to be promised anything less than God would not bring them comfort. They're just sent an impersonable force. Uh, thanks, Jesus. I just spent three years with Christ, with the Messiah here. An impersonable force is not going to do. The Holy Spirit must be God. 
And because he is, that is why we can have confidence in his comfort and teaching ministry, just as the disciples would have confidence and comfort in this ministry. If the Holy Spirit were not God, were not God, he would be fallible. For there is no creature in all of existence that could perfectly lay out for us the divine truths of God's plan, characteristics, and nature. There is clearly a distinction between all three persons, not only in these verses, but in all of Scripture. And for us to have fellowship with God is to recognize the distinction of each of these persons of the Trinity. We have to understand that what Christ is promising here to his disciples is that though he is departing from them, God the Holy Spirit is coming to them. The promise is that God is still with them and will be forever. So what we have here is this prelude of something that is to come. Christ is departing, but the show is certainly not over. And as we learn from what Brett taught last in 14, uh, chapter 14, 15 through 24, the Spirit's not coming to do something new. He's continuing what's already been started. We see that in this text. Jesus says the Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have taught you. It's not a new working as the Spirit comes. It's a continuation of what Christ had already started. He says, I'll bring to remembrance all that I've taught you. Just as Jesus' earthly ministry was a continuation of what was foretold in the Old Testament, the work of the Holy Spirit is a continuation of what Christ had taught and established. So this brings us to our second point for today. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. Again, placing ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. Christ in this farewell discourse is saying that he must depart. He must depart. He's given them all these reassurances that they will not be alone. He says earlier in 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. You get this full reassurance. You get this full confidence that they will not be alone and they will be comforted. These are wonderful, marvelous promises that Jesus gives to His disciples. There's all this talk of comfort and reassurance, but there remains a question to be answered. What are the disciples going to do next? Because obviously Jesus has started something. In Jesus' first sermon or first preaching as He comes into ministry is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Something began at that moment. And upon His departure, something must continue. But what are these disciples to do? They have a promise of comfort. They have a promise of the Holy Spirit being there. But now this promise fulfills of what they are going to continue to do to teach and to preach all that they have learned. The role of the Holy Spirit given to the disciples now is a role of teaching and remembrance. Not only were they promised comfort in the coming sorrow, but they were promised a teacher who would remind them of all the things that Christ had taught them. And I think if one thing is apparent with the disciples, and again, no real fault to them, is they have little to no clue of what actually is taking place as Jesus is speaking these words. 
again, we have hindsight, so we can look through and we can read the chapters really slowly and say, how do his disciples not understand that what he said is going to happen, that he's going to die? It, it's easy to put ourselves outside of this and look, looking down on them and be like, these foolish disciples. But being in the moment, it's easy to realize that if we were there, we would too be shocked by what Jesus is saying. Not understanding fully this departure. Again, thinking too of ourselves, how many of us after listening to a sermon could go and write out a copy of what we just listened to? Now take this and multiply it tenfold. How many of us could spend three years in college and at the end of that time not only write what we had learned out, but be able to discern the mind of our teachers? This is something that's insane, impossible. But that's what's going to take place. Once Christ departs, these very disciples are going to be given the Great Commission. These very disciples are going to be told to go out into all the earth and, and teach and preach and baptize in my name and to teach all that I have commanded you. No small task, saints. Making disciples of all the nations is an impossible thing on our own accord. So we begin to see how this promise here in verse 26 is Nothing small, it's huge. The Great Commission, again, being around the corner. Disciples will be led on by the Spirit just as Jesus was led on by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to be the teacher who dwells in them. Again, this is massive because we have what we have here is a promise from Christ that the teachings of the disciples upon His departure are going to be the very words of God. Not only would the Holy Spirit teach them all things, but He would bring to their remembrance all that they had been taught. Again, the disciples at this time could not fully grasp what they were being promised. But there was coming a day soon, Pentecost, when the reality of this promise would shine forth in all its splendor and all its glory. I think it's important for us to recognize this promise was delivered to the disciples first. Again, it's easy for us to read the Bible and we come to a passage and we try to interpret it immediately as, what does this mean for me first? We have to consider the context of the passage. I know we've all seen Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. We've seen the abuse that people use of that verse. I can do all things through Christ. I can have a Ferrari, all these absurd, ridiculous things that people try to accredit to a Bible verse. But saints, I would encourage you this morning, we are just as guilty at times to take the immediate context and apply it to ourselves. But here's the beautiful thing. When we understand the full context, all of Scripture's full understanding brings a greater gospel joy than trying to just take it and apply it to us personally. To understand the full context is a greater gospel joy than to try to say this verse applies to me in a way that it doesn't. I kind of want to give an illustration of the necessity of context. I want to tell you a few things. And as I say the first line, I want you to think of what I'm saying and what imagery comes to mind. And I will first admit that this might seem kind of gruesome. 
But please bear with me for a moment and you'll see the full context of what I'm about to say. So the first line, a man takes a knife and stabs a woman in the chest. Immediately, our minds with limited context come up with the most gruesome idea of what this, what's happening, what's taking place. We think it's a twisted murderer killing someone. We think of all kinds of things, just a simple sentence. But now, how does the story change if I tell you the man is a heart surgeon and the woman is in need of a new heart? Now we look at the man with honor and dignity. He is no killer, killer, but rather he's attempting to save a life. And so that shows us the necessity of understanding context when reading a story. Because at first glance, it might seem off or it might be something that is, is putting off to us or it might be something we try to apply to ourselves. But when understanding the full context of a story, we see the full depth of its truth. I think this is absolutely important for us in a time when so many people try to live their own truth. When an age when what is true for you is not true for me is so adamant. So we approach the Bible with the desire to learn the full context. And again, the beauty is that when we have the full context of the story, it's actually far more glorious than if we try to make the immediate context about us. So the promise here is given to the disciples first and foremost. They will have the Holy Spirit to teach them and bring to remembrance all that He has taught them. The Holy Spirit would come and He would grant the disciples an inerrant understanding of Christ and His teaching. He would enable them to remember the life and the ministry of Christ. He would give them further understanding of what Christ had taught them. Again, not being a new work, but a continuation of what Christ had already established. So not only were they given a source of comfort with the coming of the Holy Spirit, they were given a source of truth. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The disciples spoke words as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And these words would be recorded and written down. And these words would become what we hold in our hands this morning. God's holy and perfect word. So we see the primary context of this verse applying to the disciples, but now we're beginning to see the promise given to them now affects us. First and foremost, again, we have God's Word right here in our hands this morning. You can hold it. You can open it. You can read it. You have the very words of God given to you. And secondly, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit as our teacher today. Apart from the Spirit's revelation of Christ to us, we would not know God. All of the wisdom of this world, every last bit of it, the smartest man on this earth apart from Christ cannot know God. It takes a working of the Holy Spirit as our teacher to reveal to us the things of Christ. All of the wisdom of the world cannot lead us to the knowledge of God. The Spirit works as a teacher to reveal to the hearts of men all that Christ is and all that Christ has done. 
Saints, if you are in Christ this morning, the supernatural, supernatural work in the Spirit has shown in your hearts. You know Christ because the Holy Spirit is a teacher to you. This is what Paul refers to as foolishness of the Gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. It takes the working of the Holy Spirit to make the foolishness of the cross the very thing we treasure and cherish here this morning. The working of the Holy Spirit is not only revealed to us the truth of the Gospel, but it causes us to be born again. Jesus again says you must be born again. There must be regeneration. This is something, again, that cannot be accomplished through human schemes. It must be done by the working of the Holy Spirit in the rebellious hearts of men. I think one of my favorite verses to really draw this out is Ezekiel 36, 26-27. And it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to carefully observe my ordinances. The beauty in all of these things is that they are all a work of grace, resulting in the praise and glory of our great God. The work of the Holy Spirit caused us to see the beauty of Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit gave us the new heart. It removed the heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh that we might understand and see the beauty of Christ. The Holy Spirit dwelling within us caused us to walk in His statutes. Saints, our hearts apart from Christ have no desire to follow God's law. But because of the work of the Holy Spirit, we are now able to have faith in Christ and to follow and observe His commandments. Apart from the teaching of the Holy Spirit of God, we would remain dead in our sins and trespasses. We would continue to be haters of God. It is the Spirit that testifies to us of what Christ has done for us. Supernatural work of the Spirit in the heart of the believer brings about a peace in the believer that surpasses all understanding. When we truly grasp that the cross is not folly any longer to us, but it is the very thing that gives us life, that is the working of the Spirit in us. That in our darkest hours, when it seems as if all hope is lost, we have the cross. It's easy to get stuck in this world right now. It's easy to look at the events of even the first few days of this year and say, here we go again. What madness is going to befall us this year? It's easy to become weary. It's easy to become disheartened and easy to become saddened. As you look around and we look at what's taking place before our very eyes. It's easy to become weary, saints. But our hope is that we can turn to the Word of God. And by the Spirit, the the great Teacher, be filled with hope and assurance that all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. 
that the spirit that dwells in you this morning is the same spirit that will testify to you of the truths found in this word, this word we have before us. So if you're weary here this morning, my hope and my prayer for you is you that, would allow, that you would allow this spirit of truth to permeate in your mind. Meditate on the promises of God found in His Word. Trust in the completed work of Christ. Saints, we have such a great assurance that the very Spirit promised to these weary disciples is now the very Spirit that dwells in you this morning. The same Spirit that was promised to the disciples who were about to see their Messiah tortured and hung on a tree, that were about to betray their own Messiah, the guilt that would befall them. The same Spirit that came and comforted them and taught them the truth is the Spirit that dwells in you this morning. Saints, we have much to rejoice over. But not only is He our comforter and our advocate now, the promises that Jesus has given here is that it is for eternity. All of our days... When we come to death, we will spend with God. This promise is not just for us here on this earth, but it is eternal. We get to spend eternity with Christ our King, bowing before His throne, worshiping Him. We get to hear the chorus of the angels sing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Forever. Jesus said earlier, in my Father's house are many rooms and I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again and gather you. Saints, it is the spirit of truth that reveals that to us and affirms that in our hearts that what Christ has said here is for you. So we get this full picture, saints. Christ in His love and compassion for the disciples has given them a promise in these verses. Not only would they be given a source of comfort, they would be given a source of truth. The Holy Spirit enabled the apostles to go on and perform miracles, to go on and stand before kings with boldness, to go on and write the New Testament and many other miraculous things. The words from the Bible we hold in our hands this morning were at some point in our lives spoken to us in such a way that the Holy Spirit caused us to believe in Christ. There's no small thing, saints. These words bring life. And the Holy Spirit as the teacher is the life giver. What confidence then when we approach someone who has lost it, but merely speaking these words, the Holy Spirit does as He pleases with them. He either brings judgment or He brings life. No greater hope do we have that those that we love that are lost can be found. And by such a foolish thing as reading the gospel. It is foolish to this world, but to those who are being saved, it is the gift of life. Romans 10.17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We see the full picture of grace the very promise that would comfort the disciples in their greatest sorrow, when they were completely disheartened by the death of Christ, this very promise would then lead to the writing of the New Testament. 
The very words that would lead to our salvation some 2,000 years later. Ephesians 1.13 says, In Him being Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, of the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Titus 3, 5 through 6 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. It's because of the triune work of God revealed to us by the Spirit of truth that we have the full assurance of these promises we read in God's Holy Word. So that brings us to our final point for today. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our peace. A guarantee of our peace. It's because the Holy Spirit is God, it's because He is our teacher, that the truths found in Scripture become confirmed in our hearts and our minds. It's the Holy Spirit whom testifies to us all the beauties and treasures hidden in Christ. John 16, 13 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. We have the assurance that what we have in our hands today in the Bible is divinely inspired by the mind of Christ. It was brought forward to the apostles 2,000 years ago. We have peace with God because of His Word confirmed to us by the Holy Spirit. We have the veracity of the Bible not being founded in finite men, but rather rooted in the promise that Christ Himself gives here to the apostles. We can believe that the Bible is true because Jesus says He's sending His Spirit to the disciples. What a peace we can have knowing that all of the promises of Scripture are authored and guaranteed by the Lord. We have to understand that there is a call to action on our behalf. We want to experience this peace. If we want to understand this comfort, if we understand the Holy Spirit is our teacher, we must be in the Word. The ministry of the Holy Spirit today will be most evidence to us as He illuminates the truths found in God's Word to us. My question for us this morning is, are we seeking to find that illumination? Are we seeking to have the Spirit of Truth testify to our hearts all the things that God has spoken in His Word? Romans 15.13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That is the promise to you, saints, if you are weary this morning. That is the promise to us if we are disheartened, if we are brought down by what this world is doing in its chaos. That is the promise to us that the God of hope would fill us with joy and peace 
in our faith in Him. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would abound in hope. Have you found yourself abounding in hope lately? Have you found yourself abounding in hope if you turn on the news? Have you found yourself abounding in hope by watching some nonsensical TV show? Saints, I'm telling you this morning, I am just as guilty. We are not going to be abounding in hope if we spend so much time in this world trying to buy into what this world's trying to sell us. And again, it could go down to just watching the news. How many people feel sick after watching the news for 20 minutes? There's no hope. There's no redemption. There's no grace. The mercy that the government offers is not mercy. It's wickedness. The hope that a news station might offer is just to beat up your neighbor worse than they beat you up. There's nothing for us there, saints. The promise of the Holy Spirit is that we would abound in hope. And to see that abounding, we must be in God's Word. That's where the ministry of the Holy Spirit takes place, as we read and study God's Word. This very promise that was given to the disciples to comfort them and give them a source of truth has through 2,000 years given us the Bible that we have in our hands. Read the Word. Abound in hope. So as we close... I want to again remind us of where we've gone this morning. Jesus, hours before he is to be crucified, gives this farewell discourse to the disciples, a promise of peace, a promise of hope, and a promise of faith. That their hearts would not be disheartened, that they would have comfort. He promises the coming of this Holy Spirit the one who will not only comfort and advocate for them, but will teach them. Through those centuries, we've seen how this promise to the disciples has been made into fruition through the Great Great Commission. We see the fruits of these disciples here this morning. A bunch of fishermen and tax collectors 2,000 years ago were given a promise that the Holy Spirit would be with them. And you are in Christ this morning because of that promise. What a day to rejoice. What a day to praise the Lord for all that He has done. We've been given so much grace. Grace abounds upon grace. My prayer for us saints is that we would be reminded of these truths daily, that we'd mine the depths of the Word of God and be filled with hope. So I want to close with this, and this is my prayer for you here at Phoenix First Baptist Church. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your magnificent word. We thank you for the beautiful truths revealed to us and taught to us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I lift this church up to you, this body up to you, Lord, and I thank you for these saints. What a beautiful thing to fellowship with the saints, to sing of your praises and to hear of your glory through your word. Lord, I pray that you would encourage this body and strengthen them, that you would use them in a mighty way for your glory and for your purpose. 
Lord, bless them, strengthen them. Lord, let your word be at the center of their hearts as they meditate on the things of you. God, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your son who by his blood has purchased our souls. That we have confidence and assurance that Jesus Christ is Lord now and forever. That his authority, his rule is above any kingdom, any might, any man. God, you reign in heaven above and in here on this earth. Your throne is an everlasting throne. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And by your grace, we have been invited to be in that kingdom. Jesus, you said we are not orphans, but we are your children. You've brought us into a royal priesthood, Lord. We've been called, we've been set apart, Lord, for your glory. And so, Lord, we praise you for those things this morning. Let your preeminence shine forever as it will. And let us sing of your praises. In Jesus' name, amen.